you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. So we're deep in the throes of planning for Afrotech 2021, and COVID still sucks. <laughs> While we still have some in-person events, the bulk of the conference this year will be a digital experience. But never fear, you've never seen a digital experience like an Afrotech digital experience. Last year in the virtual world, I met people from all over the real world, from Cape Town to St. Louis. And I didn't have to wear a mask to get on an airplane. While I do miss seeing you all in person, that time will come again. But for now, and before we get into today's episode from one of our highest viewed YouTube series ever, Term Sheets, I wanted to share some of my most memorable experiences from Afrotech 2018. Backstage at the conference, I got a chance to sit down with some of the biggest names in tech, media, and business. I asked the things all of us want to know. How do we successfully raise venture capital? Are all our efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion helping or hurting us? And how do we find customers or strategic partners for our businesses? Marlon Nichols is managing partner at Mac Venture Capital, a Los Angeles-based VC firm which focuses on C-stage companies and invests in visionary founders. Marlon is one of the most genuine people I've met in this industry, always quick to respond to an email and always full of great counsel and has a quiver full of strategic advice. We're talking backstage at Afrotech 2018. Here's the conversation. Will Lucas for Afrotech here with my guy, Marlon Nichols of Mac Venture Capital, formerly Cross Culture Ventures. This is not your first Afrotech. Tell me about your experience with Afrotech and what makes it so exciting. We first invested in Blavity maybe three years ago now. So it's been since then. 
and every year it's doubled in size. I think this year it might have tripled in size. So it's, it's amazing to see all these young black people, ambitious young black people running around. You, you gave a really great talk last year about cap tables and helping people understand, you know, their diverse, their equity distribution and that whole thing. So a lot of tips, advice come out of the Bay Area in raising money. But if I'm raising money in, let's say, in Illinois or Tennessee, how do I apply that when my ecosystem may not be the same as raising money in the Silicon Valley? It's all the same. It's all the same game. So there are going to be investors in wherever you are, right? And it's about you finding them. Particularly at the early stages, it's typically going to be angel investors. So people that know something about the industry that you're going into uh, that want to support you, right? So target them first, get going, build something. And then once you have something and the traction is rolling, like, Institutional investors are going to follow that traction, right? So as long as you build it, right, and it's doing what it's supposed to do, then you can start reaching out outside of your um, your local ecosystem to bring in additional capital. But start start local and find the people that make sense for your business. You just talked about a little bit difference between angel investors and institutional investors. Can you dig into that a little bit? Because if I'm looking at an angel, maybe I don't have all the traction and data points there yet to justify going to an a institutional like a VC. So angel investors, they're investing their own personal capital, right? Whereas a, a institutional um, investor or a, a VC, someone like me, I'm investing out of a fund. So capital that I've raised from different groups of, um, of investors, individuals, family offices, foundations, endowments, et cetera, and I'm deploying that capital over a period of time, typically about five years, right? Um, angel investors, as I said, their own pocketbook, right? What they need to see from you versus what I need to see from you is gonna be different. Also, our check sizes are gonna be different, right? Um, they, they require less, they're also gonna write smaller checks, right? I'm gonna require a bit more, and I'm gonna write a much larger check, somewhere half a million to 1.5, right? So that's, that's, the, that's I would say that's the key difference. Um, and they're, they're usually willing to, to get involved at the ideation stage, right? So you got an idea in the space, I know the space really well, I think I can help you. I'm, I'm a fan of what you're doing and of you and your team. All right, let me put some money in here and also some sweat equity. Love that. And so if I'm thinking about um, raising money, how do I know how to price it? So if, am I just trying to get enough money to get myself off the ground or am I trying to raise enough to build a war chest to not only get off the ground, but get far enough out to where I can keep competitors off. How do you think about that? Companies can get in a lot of trouble, have gotten in a lot of trouble historically when they raise more money than they need. If you take on five, 10% more than what you actually need to hit your milestones, you're probably okay, right? But if you just pile on this capital and you don't have a, you don't have a use for it, it usually gets wasted. And um, it gets wasted in the, um, in the form of resources. So now you're hiring a bunch of people that you don't need. You're probably pursuing a lot of different um, avenues that you shouldn't be pursuing right now, right? Because the name of the game is, is focus and just laser in on something. Uh, find success with that, conquer it, and then start to add you know, layers to it. If you have all that money, you're probably you're gonna skip the stage of making sure that the thing works and jump right into step two and step three. And a lot of times failures happen as a result of that. So I always tell um, entrepreneurs, you wanna raise for investment cycle, which is 18 to 24 months. Attached to that is a certain uh, number of milestones that you wanna achieve, right? So how much do I need to raise in order to achieve these milestones within that, within that time frame, right? And let's say I'm giving myself 24 months. Well, 
realistically, I want to be, I should have hit those milestones by the 18 month um, point, giving me time to raise, raise money when I'm not running out of capital. And so this may be an interesting question to ask a VC, but being somebody who's seen a lot of cap tables and seen a lot of heartbreak, you know, at the end of the, at the end of companies, talk to me about how you think about what entrepreneurs should be thinking about in the early stages of giving out equity to not only co-founders, but also to them early investors. What kind of things should they be thinking about? Keep as much of your company early as you, as you possibly can. So I always tell entrepreneurs, there are only two reasons that I think that you should be raising capital, right? One is that you absolutely have to hire the resources to build the product. There's no other way for you to build this product and get it to market other than raising venture capital to do that. The other is you're at a point where you've built something and the only way that you're gonna scale this thing and, and let's say it's a, it's a competitive space or will be a competitive space, you gotta scale and scale quick, right? So now you, now you need the capital in order to do that. Scaling organically is gonna take too long. Those are, in my opinion, the only two reasons why a founder should be looking to, to take on um, venture funding. In terms of like employees, you want to be fair. There, there, there are reports in terms of like compensation reports um, that you can get from recruiting uh, agencies and law firms and all that stuff. So I'd say get a hold of that and see what um, what what the average um, payout in terms of equity and salary, etc., for companies at your stage is, and just kind of stay as close to that as possible. You want to be competitive, but you also don't want to give give away the farm. Will Lucas here for Afrotech, Marlon Nichols, Mac Venture Capital, formerly Cross Culture Ventures. And at Afrotech 2018, I also spoke with Angela Rye, a political and social commentator and fire brand who takes no prisoners. She took to the main stage at Afrotech that year to discuss the black opportunity in cannabis with some prolific black innovators in the marijuana space. We sat talking about social justice, how legislation impacts the black opportunity in tech, and demanding seats at the table versus building our own. Well, Lucas Afrotech 2019, I am here with the world famous Angela Rye. How are you? I'm great. Not world famous, but happy to be here. Thank you. When we talk about tech, there's this, I call it Jesse Jackson approach that says, you know, we need a seat at the table, Facebook, Google, and et cetera. And there's also this approach of we're going to build our own table, right? Can you talk to me about how you see that argument playing out with 10,000 black people here who are trying to build their dreams and what position we should be thinking about? Walking into the building, into this, just the greater surrounding area, it felt so good and felt so free. And I think that one of the most incredible things about Reverend Jackson's approach so far with the tech community, what he did with Wall Street, has been um, that it's not just one way you know, to go about this. There are several. We need people who own, but we also need people with seats at the table. We need the people who um, haven't had seats yet, but we need someone to bust that door open. And Reverend Jackson has done a tremendous job of doing that through Rainbow Push Tech 2020. So has the Congressional Black Caucus through um, their tech initiative to ensure that we're not only um, hiring companies to be diversity and inclusion officers, but to ensure there's real equity at, the, at these companies. And while we have miles to go, I think that's where ownership um, an opportunity uh, to have access to capital to create our own comes to, comes into play. Um, there is no innovator like 
a black mind. And I think that is the unique space that Afrotech creates and reminds us of, right? I think that we can't hear that enough. Um, and so I think it's wonderful that what you all are doing. So thank you for letting me be a part. So you just came off and talked about cannabis. And when you look at the landscape of cannabis and the industry, I guess I should say, is what has been characteristic of the black companies who have found success in your view in this field where all the hurdles are you know, place for us to not be successful. Yeah, well, I have to be honest with you. I don't know of many. Um, the one that I am the most impressed with and do a lot of work with is Fourth Movement. Um, uh, Kareem Webb, who was just on the panel, um, talks about it. And it's just this revolutionary concept. I say all the time that it's like, um, if we were to create um, our ideal program for what reparations should look like, that's it. And what they've done for us, by us, is say, um, there are these brilliant people who have been hamstrung in life by the fact that they were born into families where they weren't rich or they made one bad move and ended up um, incarcerated or they had a sibling or um, a, a son or a daughter who was incarcerated due to the war on drugs. We want to find that person that um, uh, person would ha who has this great potential and train them for a year to equip them to be their own retail operator. It is an incredible concept and to me, it is exactly what social equity should look like. When we talk about opportunities in cannabis, it shouldn't be about a level playing field, it should be giving us what we deserve and what we have earned in part because we were punished through no, no fault of our own to ensure that we absolutely and actually have viable businesses in the long run. You mentioned this and that there's not just one way to be successful in any of these industries. How important is it for our black voices to be in the boardroom and not just with regards to diversity and inclusion? immensely important. Uh, one thing that we know right now is there's not a single black woman of a Fortune 500 company, um, a, not a single black woman CEO. And uh, it's 2019, right? This is our 400th year of being here. I've been saying it all year long. I'm gonna continue saying it um, since the first documented enslaved person arrived on these shores. And for 400 years, we have been building up the companies of everyone else, consuming their products, consuming their services. And we know that um, our culture is so often appropriated. We know that our neighborhoods are so often gentrified. We know that we're so often um, at the cutting edge of uh, whatever is the coolest and next best greatest thing. Of course we should have a board seat. That's the least we should have is a board seat. When you think about anything from funding to access to consumers, like, like net neutrality and et cetera, how important is legislation with regards to finding success in each or either of these avenues? You know, it's key. I think about often um, for the people who are watching this who haven't seen the documentary uh, about Maynard Jackson, thinking about what he did as, and it wasn't legislation, but it was through uh, his executive powers as the mayor of the city of Atlanta when the airport project came up and said, no, let me tell you how many people who look like me are going to be working on this airport. It's 33 and a third percent. No, we don't always have to rely on set-asides or goals or quotas, but what we know happens as a result of that is that we finally get our say. We finally get our opportunities. That does not happen if it's not forced because unfortunately, historically, we haven't been in decision-making seats. So that's why Maynard Jackson 
whether he's uh, a mayor or Keisha Lance Bottoms now as the mayor of the city of, of Atlanta or a state legislator or uh, Maxine Waters, who's the chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee and said, let me tell you what we're going to do in order for this legislation to pass. You're going to have to have offices of minority and women inclusion in every financial service agency in the federal government. That's how this is going to work. So if there's not someone there that's like, I'm going to be the elbows and the mouth and I'm ensure that you do what's right by my people. It doesn't change. So we need it. There are 10,000 people here for Afrotech this year. How important is this conference? Major. It's major for our mental health. It's major for us to see each other um, in this space. I think it's major for partnership opportunities. You might come here and meet your next business partner. And if nothing else, you leave encouraged knowing that you're not in this space alone and you have the ability to keep going. So I don't think we even have to say we shall overcome. Today, I feel like I overcame something. I feel like a conqueror in this speech. Shout out to Kirk Franklin for conquerors, by the way. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Richard Kirby is general partner at Equal Ventures. We're sitting on the set of term sheets, the Afrotech series about venture capital in New York City, discussing what it takes not only to be a VC, but what are the characteristics of a good VC? What is the makeup of a successful VC? And how do I know if the gig is a fit for my personality and profile? Yeah, venture capital is about investing and supporting early stage entrepreneurs. And so that means you're, you know, you're finding companies that are hopefully diamonds in the rough, you're doing diligence. And so you're trying to figure out if that investment is a good fit for your investment profile. And then uh, you're making the investment. You may or may not be taking a board seat, but then you're also finding ways to be supporting of those companies. And so what do they need to get done to make their chance of success much higher? You'll do so. That means recruiting, helping with fundraising, strategy, business development, even maybe sales. And so those components make up a lot of the different pieces of venture capital. Um, on top of that, obviously, if you're running a fund, you have to fundraise for your fund. And that's another kind of um, back office type of thing that we try to focus on as well. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth... Let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, 
while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. So, so you, you mentioned a couple of different disciplines, and I think about if I was you know, a person coming out of college and I wanted to do venture capital, you added other things other than just giving money mm-hmm. to startups. And what are those other things that make a VC partner a good partner instead of just a checkbook? Yeah, yeah I think it's um, hard to add value because you never know what's happening in the day-to-day of a business or a startup, which is why you have to try your best to be as hands-on as possible and be as intimate and close as far as possible. And so the things that we work on is, you know, with our portfolio company CEOs, we talk to our CEOs every two weeks. We've got scheduled sessions so that we can ask them, you know, how are things going, how you how can be helpful. Because when you're running a company, you're too busy. You can't think of like, how can Will help me or Rich help me? You need to have scheduled time for them to ask, where are your needs right now and how can I be helpful? Sometimes that may be, you know, I need to hire a VP of engineering. Can you help me? Sometimes that means I'm getting ready to fundraise. I need to practice. I need to get my story right. I need to figure out which investor I should be targeting. And sometimes that means, hey, we're thinking about changing our business. Like we were doing this today. We think it makes more sense to pivot in this other direction. Can we run our strategy and our vision by you to get a sense of like, is this the right path for us? And so it's a variety of things. But what we try and do is be proactive about being helpful and and make those conversations happen because it's really hard to elicit how a founder can need help without asking that question in the first place. So at what stage should a startup be talking to a VC versus like an angel or just, you know, Mm -hmm. family and friends? Talk to me about the different stages of the progression of the types of investors I should be talking to. Sure, sure. Um, You know, angel investors and family friends are just folks that will kind of invest in a person, right? Um, You know, sight unseen what your idea is. I'm a believer in Will. I want to support whatever Will's doing. And so those are hopefully the first dollars you can get. Those dollars aren't easy. You know, as a undergrad coming out of college, I did not know folks that could give me a million bucks (laughs) or half a million dollars to get started. So it's very hard to find family and friends. Um, But they do exist. And and I think they they exist for a reason. With that said, though, um, it actually can be easier to access sometimes actual venture capitalists. They have websites, their profiles, they build their own personal brands. It's really hard to know who's an angel, who has capital as an individual or not. Now, the timing for targeting a venture investor versus an angel 
it's tricky because some investors at a venture fund will invest in a company before it's even begun, uh, before it's started, before it's incorporated, before there's a product in place. And some will want to see traction and data. And so it's important to figure out what's the right fit investor profile for you as a company. Um, so if you're just starting out, maybe it's you and your co-founder, you probably want to focus on what is now called pre-seed funds. These are funds that will help you raise capital before you actually have built a product. The capital, you know, whether it's half a million dollars, maybe less, maybe more, the sole focus of capital is for you to get the product in market so you can get to a spot where a seed investor like myself will be more comfortable taking risk on you as a founder. A seed investor, Correct. not a pre-seed. So Correct. There's, okay. there's, a, there's, a, there's been this new bifurcation amongst pre-seed and seed, where pre-seed is no product, let's give you capital to go build something, and seed is there may or may not be a product in place, but what we think about it is you're about 12 months away from demonstrating product market fit. Okay. And what we try and work with our founders is to figure out what is product market fit for your company and how can we help you get there beyond just the cap that we're hopefully going to provide to you. How do VCs make money? Yeah, so, so VCs make income in two ways. Um, one, salary, and the second piece, carry. And so, um, you know, just to make the math easier, let's say you have a $100 million venture fund. Um, the GPs generally will take 20% of the carry, which is 20% of the profits. So let's say $100 million fund, we've returned $200 million of capital back to our LP, i.e. I've made $100 million of, of value for my investors. 80% um, of that money will go back to your LPs as their profit. 20% will go to the partners of the fund. So $20 million will go spread out however you guys agree to amongst your partnership. And that's kind of the, the profit slash carry that you'll take. Um, at the early stage, at the seed stage, it takes a while to reach that because our companies are very, very early. They may not exit for five, seven, ten years, and so it takes time to get to carry at the early stage. It's, it's a much shorter time frame at the later stage. And the last piece is uh, funds generally take 2% of those fees, of the, of the capital, sorry, for management fee to run their business. And so $100 million fund, generally management fee is 2%, so you have $2 million in that, in, in that example each year to run your business. And that $2 million goes to pay your salary, your employee's salary, rent, um, travel, entertainment, you know, if you feed your team, all these things go into that, that, that budget you have to kind of manage with that, with that capital. So in your opinion, what makes a good VC? What are the characteristics of somebody who could be good at this? Yeah, I think the, um, the traits for an individual are just inherent in somebody else. It's not really about like what you studied in school. It's much more about like who you are as an individual. Are you intellectually curious? Are you, um, do you enjoy learning about different things? And I guess lastly, do you enjoy helping others? Those are really three points that are you know, inherent to anybody that could make them an efficient, or sorry, a, a successful venture capitalist. Because at the end of the day, sourcing is a big piece. So finding companies, and that means, do you get excited by finding new things? Like, um, you can see that in any industry. You could get excited by finding the rare sneaker that you haven't seen come out yet, or that new track on Spotify you haven't heard yet. That excites people, and finding a new company excites venture capitalists. Um, doing diligence, so you know, diving deep to figure out, you know, what's this company do? What space are they in? How can this company get very, very large? That's just learning. If you enjoy learning, you'll enjoy diving deep on a company, understanding how it works, or the industry that it, that it operates in. And lastly, you know, uh, when you're on a board of a company or an investor, you're trying to do everything possible to help that company. You know, try to give them as many unfair advantages as possible, so that the founder has less on their plate and the team has less on their plate. And that's all that is really is helping people. So if you enjoy helping people, that's a great way to kind of manifest that uh, inherent trait of yours to you know, do good for a company.
So let's talk about New York and particularly doing venture capital here in New York. Um, finance capital of the world, um, some would argue, or many would argue. And what is the difference between doing venture capital here versus doing it in the Bay Area or in other smaller markets that you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Bay Area is the tech capital of the world, period, full stop. We're not, I don't think we can lean a claim to that. But I think New York has, you mentioned finance, New York has an epicenter of many different other industries, whether it be finance, media, advertising, lots of e-commerce. And so we touch many, many different fields. And so we may not be the technology capital of the world, but I think we're like the industry capital of the world because there's so many industries that are, you call New York their home and their HQ. And we think that allows us to kind of see and better understand different kinds of businesses. And so we don't have to just look at a pure software businesses. We can look at companies that maybe have a little software, but actually still have many other moving parts that aren't really software related. And because the nuances of these verticals that are based in New York, we have contacts, networks, and have a better understanding of these other verticals that maybe aren't just considered tech only. You had um, done a study, I don't know if you want to call it a study, but you did some research a couple of years ago sure. on why there is not a lot of black people in venture capital mm -hmm. across the country. Um, so I want to say it was three or four years ago. Now the original post went mm -hmm. up on your uh, website. What did you learn then and what has not changed or what has changed? Sure. Yeah, I guess what I've learned is that, um, I guess looking at the data, I didn't learn anything, which is that I already knew there were mm -hmm. very few black folk in venture capital. Um, just I could probably count on one hand when I was back in the Bay Area in, in 2010 when I first started. Uh, and so the data didn't surprise me. Um, I, I wrote the data, I wrote the report and the data because I wanted folks to have a, a voice. I wanted to kind of shine a light on the problem. Because I feel like when you discuss problems without data, people are like, I don't see it. I can't really, it's not tangible to me. I can't grasp it. And so I thought if I put data around the issue, people would understand how bad it is and then think through how can we think about those changes. What I have seen positively though is that there's now more and more uh, African-Americans and black folk in the kind of junior ranks of venture capital, so the associate role, the principal role, which generally is, you know, the stepping stone to become a partner in the fund, which I think is great to kind of build that pipeline of folks. It's still not near enough to kind of replace the, um, the we'll call it the old guard in venture capital, but there's more to do there. I think the other thing that I'm seeing positively is that um, there's more and more funds started by black GPs. Um, mm -hmm. I think the problem with trying to create, or I should say correct, the lack of diversity in venture capital is that most venture funds don't hire anyone any year. Like the average venture fund hires zero people per year. It's a small group of, small group of people, small teams. And so if you're not hiring every year, you really can't change the dynamics of your team. And so one way to actually change it is to just create newer funds. And I think as we create more funds, those funds themselves will be more diverse. And then uh, we'll see more progress as, in terms of diversifying the venture capital industry. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements. 
along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Have you seen a lot of progress um, with regards to black founders being able to raise money successfully and black women particularly being able to raise money successfully? There is some progress. Not nearly enough, though. I mean, I think the, the numbers are still very anemic on black female founders that are able to raise meaningful amounts of capital. And I think it's um, a couple reasons why. One, the industry dynamics. When there aren't investors that look like you, they're less likely to trust you, believe in you, want to invest in you, want to support you. And that makes it challenging for anyone who's a person of color to be able to kind of raise capital in that environment. Um, similarly, it's hard to get in the venture industry as well as a junior member or not because people aren't looking for that. I think the other piece, too, is accessibility. And so um, if the venture investors don't look like you, the chances that you're in their orbit or someone you know is in their orbit is very, very limiting. Now, on the positive side, though, we are seeing more and more funds pop up that are focused on women, people of color, African-American founders. And I think that's great. We need more and more of that. And I think as we see more of that, the legacy venture funds will realize they're missing things and spend more and more time on that dimension. And so I think... The biggest challenge right now for a person of color or a woman founder is that seed stage. I think it's really hard to get that round done. Once you're prox in market, you've got traction. It makes it easier for a investor who doesn't look like you to get there because they can like put you aside and look at your numbers. Um, now, with that said, it's hard to get to that point. And if you're boxed out from actually even having a chance of building it in the first place, it's very, very limiting pipeline. So I think there's a lot more work to be done there. I don't have all the answers, but there needs to be more done, more work to be done to thought, think through that as well. Yeah, and again, you, you, just, you just said I don't have all the answers, but I think about even if, you know, with the amount of black investors we have today, black female investors and people like you, black men investors, there are so many amazing companies or potentially amazing companies, and there's just not enough 
of those investors to go around that are, you know, tenable to being able to write them a check. But there's also a conversation about by any means necessary, I got to make this company happen. What do you say to those companies that are listening and watching this to and who may run into you at Afrotech or may see you in the street down in here in New York? Because what happens in my experience, I see so many and you guys become like the savior. So you're the only ones. Yeah. So everybody's got to come see Richard. Mm-hmm. And so, and, but you can't fund everybody sure. and you can't listen to every pitch. And you, and so I'm, I see you at Afrotech and you've got a, a line of a hundred people, a mm-hmm. hundred people are pitching you. Yeah. I may have the best idea, but I'm in number 65 mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, you're desensitized sure. to it by that point. So what do you say to those folks who are, you know, trying to make it happen at the seed stage mm-hmm. and even in pre-seed stage to get to you? What do you say to encourage them? Yeah, I think um, you said it best, by any means necessary. And so it may be a cold email. It may be, you know, they know Will, and they know Will knows Kirby, and so they can use Will as a a conduit to get to Kirby. I think the challenge with having so few investors that are black in the space that want to support black founders is that um, the legacy venture funds assume that, like, Kirby has seen every deal of every (laughs) black founder. And so, you know, this this founder came to me. I got to ask Kirby, what do you think about Will? And if I'm not investing in Will's company, that's like a negative signal to them, which, which shouldn't be the case. As you said before, there's thousands of companies. They can't all be a good fit for what I do at Equal Ventures or what we do at Equal Ventures. And so it's finding the right fit. And I think that is a dynamic that's bad for the industry. And we need to find ways to improve that. And so I think that means having more people of color in venture. And then that helps pursue or open the doors for more founders that can say, hey, I don't have to only come to Kirby or, you know, folks at Harlem Capital or Charles at Precursor or anyone else. It's, you know, my options are actually limitless. And we need to get to that point to enable as many founders of color as possible to raise capital at the early stage. Because at the point in time right now, like founders aren't succeeding, not because their business sucks, their idea sucks. You're not getting a chance. You're not even giving, giving the capital to give you a shot to go kind of test out your idea. Whereas our counterparts, can have nothing to show for it, raise millions of dollars and go test it out. We need to get to that level of parallelism to make the industry more equitable. When you think about taking that $20 million and running versus, you know, when founders come to you, everybody believes they have a billion dollar business, I Mm -hmm. would assume, you know, in in the macro. Sure. Everybody thinks everybody wants to buy their product. How do you bring founders back down to earth in some respect, but also encourage them to think bigger than they mm-hmm. may be thinking about the opportunity for their product or service. Yeah, so we, we focus on the seed stage for us at, at Eagle Ventures. And so for us, most companies are coming to us with like an initial product in place. They haven't built out their full vision yet, but they have a larger vision for what they want to accomplish. And we call that initial product like their wedge. So what's your wedge into the market? The initial product that will get you access to your customer base of the future. And our viewpoint there is, what are you building internally in your, in your company that will allow you to attract more data to then you know, go after what your larger vision may be, whether it be a point solution today and a marketplace in the future, or a point solution today and building a platform for your category in the future. And our viewpoint there is, we want our founders to know what that vision is, but even if that vision ends up not becoming a billion dollar business, that's still fine for us. You know, We're a $56 million seed fund and we don't require our founders to be able to have to build a business to be a billion dollars for it to work for our model. 
Now, do we want that to happen? Of course. We want every company to get to that size and scale. <laughs> but given that we are a smaller fund, we take high ownership and write you know, large checks for seed rounds, that model can work just fine for us if a company sells for less. And so when we invest in the seed stage, you know, call it 12 months later, we have a convo with our founders and say, hey, you have a point in time here where you can go the kind of supercharged route of taking more capital on and you know, putting the goalpost for you know, success much further down the road for you. Or you could take a, more, uh, a less uh, capital inefficient path and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go this other route, build a great business, but don't have to have the kind of bearings of having to build a billion dollar company for success in my mind. When you see people who have that sort of thinking, is it something about their personality that says, you know, I'm not trying to build Google. Mm -hmm. I just want to take my eyelash, you know, (laughs) my eyelash product company and do a couple million dollars a year and live a good life. Like, what is it about those founders that say that you found that Mm -hmm. say, you know, I understand what the market is like for this and I'm going to be realistic about it and just live a good life based on a good income. Yeah. So I think, um, two kind of questions there. One is like, there's certain businesses that, that shouldn't take venture capital. And so if your business will kind of um, probably cash flow nicely out of the gate and there really aren't scalable paths to building a software enabled business, you might not need venture capital. It might be other software ways. Software enabled. Can you describe that? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's um, uh, current workflows, let's say across any industry that happen manually today. Like for instance, let's say, um, benefits selection. So, you know, I'm a large company. You mentioned Google. I'm Google. I may want to, you know, work with a benefits broker to select what benefits I want for my employees. So I want dental or vision or whatever I want to offer my employees. And then that process today works with you talking to a broker, a broker talking to a carrier in a very like manual face-to-face email phone call discussion. But now you think about how do you add software that layer so that you can have a more fluid and efficient process for benefit selection, benefit discovery. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of what software development could look like in the benefit space, and that can apply to many other verticals, in our opinion, at least. Um, back to your previous question around like thinking about scale and so forth, and so for that first class of companies, you may not be a good fit for venture capital at all. Um, the way we think about founders that are looking for like this home run or a larger vision is twofold. One is uh, founder market fit. And what we mean by that is, you know, why are you and your team the best team to go approach this model? And we think people get it in one of two ways. Either you've spent your entire career, majority of your career in that market. So if you were in the benefit space, maybe you spent, you know, 10 years in benefits, no inside and out, and you're the best person to go solve this. Or it could be you have um, a personal experience or passion for it that led you down this path to become an expert. And so one of our companies in our portfolio is a company called Jerry. Um, they work in the senior living space. And the founder had an instance where his father had Alzheimer's. And he had to find a home to put his father in, in a memory care scenario so that he could be taken care of. And he, he was from Canada originally, and Canada has you know, great medical benefits, and it was super easy for him to, to do so. Um, fast forward you know, a couple months later, his wife's parents had the same issue. They live in America, and the process was very, very different, very, very painful. And he thought, okay, I'm experiencing this personal experience, and it pains me. I want to find a way to improve on this process. And so you can have it either from you know, your career or your personal life, that founder market fit that we look for. And then at the end of the day, it's hard for anyone to turn down a great exit opportunity. Let's say a company comes and says, hey, we want to buy your business for $100 million and you own half the business or something like that. It's a lot of money for you. Even though you might believe that like, this could be a billion dollar business that could make you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, 
the thought process there is it might make sense to think about secondary. And so if you can give a founder some capital today that deals them, you know, relieves the other stress of, you know, paying for their home, paying for childcare, paying for school. And if you take that stress away from them financially, they can think about, you know, envisioning that larger vision of that company that they hope to succeed and build. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. It's produced by Morgan DeBon and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Marissa Lewis. Special thank you to Micah Davis and Sakara Savanyan. You know, Mike the Wine? Yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Go get your money. Peace and love. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! (laughs) And outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. AT&T connects and ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.